On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking to a Burlington woman who is thrilled that the two Michaels are home, but is wondering why her husband, who has been 15 years in a Chinese prison, is not with them. We'll talk to her. It is a difficult, difficult story for sure. We are also talking about food inflation. Statistics Canada says inflation is not going up that much, but if you go to the grocery store, you might disagree. What's going on with that? And Mark Hebsher joins us to talk about baseball, the Blue Jays, the Yankees, and the anniversary that September 28 is. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We have heard lots and lots and lots in the past few days about the two Michaels, and it's a great story. It's a fantastic story that after a thousand and whatever days that they are home, we're, we're thrilled that the two Michaels are home. Unquestionably. There's, I don't think there's a Canadian alive that isn't glad that the two Michaels are home including my next guest, my first guest. She also is excited that two Michaels are home. However, there is also, I believe, and she'll explain, but I believe an element of sadness here because while the two Michaels are now home, her husband's incarceration in a Chinese prison continues. 15 years now and counting it's been going on. Her name is Camila Telendibaeva, and she joins us now from Burlington. Camila, thanks for doing this today. Very much appreciate you taking some time. Oh, thank you for inviting me to your show. Is it possible for you, honestly, to be happy to see the two Michaels home and not to always, every single time you hear their name, be thinking about your husband? Oh, yeah. You know, it's very great to hear that news. I was happy. And then the two Michaels, they reunited with the family, with children. And then I'm very glad. I'm very happy. With the other hand, I'm very disappointed. I'm very deeply disappointed to the government. Canadian government, which is, they are forgetting, they are not linking my husband's case. You, you, disappointed is one word. You sound, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you also sound understandably a little angry about this. Yeah. Yes, I am angry. I am mad, you know, and um, uh, since the Saturday, which is, I read the news. So why they are not raising that case and then why they are, they didn't include two Michaels. What's the difference of Sane's case, you know? What's the, he's a Canadian citizen. Why they are pushing him side? Why they are hiding his case? Since the 2006, why? I want to ask through the why, why he's doing that. I want to ask a foreign affairs minister. Why he's, why he's not recognizing his citizenship? Why he's not bringing it up to the uh, top, the priority with Chinese authorities? Why? Do why you have any guess? This case? Yeah, why, he's, why they are hiding this case? Why? Why they don't want to talk about that? 15 years, it's more than decades. It's going to be 16 years next, um, next year. Camila, he's a political prisoner, correct? I mean, he, he's, not, he's not accused. What is he accused of? What, why, did, why did China put him in prison and what did they actually accuse him of yeah, doing? Why is he there? Yeah. Uh, so the first of all, the first years they were saying he's uh, linked with terrorist groups, and then after that, uh, the after the court, so they give life sentence, and then so uh, after a couple of years they said, oh, he's a separatism, you know, he was doing the speech, he was separatism, that's what he says, and then so I know my husband, he's he was very active human rights, you know, he was a strong speaking person in the public. He was protecting his people's rights, his values, his uh, culture, you know, which is. 
And he's a he's a Uyghur, correct? Yes, yes. He's a Uyghur, yes. which of course most people now know that they are a group a people group in the far regions of China that have been under a lot of pressure from yes. Chinese authorities. So that that mm-hmm. you know. It, yeah, it, it all pieces together. Exactly, yeah. There's a massive detention. There's a concentration camp since 2017, you know. And then there's the, uh, prisoners in in Xinjiang province right now. You know, there's so many massive detentions going on. And that it's a genocide. And then the, my husband, since he was a teenager, he was protecting his people's rights, his values, uh, you know, the, the young people's rights to go to university, you know, to have a equal. When was the last time that you spoke with him? Last time I have spoke 15 years ago before they were taking him away. You haven't spoken a word to him in 15 years? Yeah. That's why you... the last, yeah, last, I have last seen him 2006, yeah. Are you able to communicate by letters? Are you able to communicate at all? No, I was uh, I was getting keep in touch with his family every six months. They used to visit him every six months, and then after that three months. Since 2017-18, there's no connection. There's no contact with his family. Do you believe that you know where he is right now, or is that even a question? No, that's a question. That's a big question. Even I don't know, you know, what city, which prison he is right now. And you, and because of that, you obviously couldn't know if he's healthy or if he's that's in good what, shape. Yeah. There's nothing. Mm-hmm. You could know nothing. In so many year, yeah, in so many years, we were wondering about his health, how he's doing, you know, how he's doing. And that nobody gets access for him from the Canadian embassy, from the Canadian stuff, you know, even the Red Cross. Nobody get access for him. Because why? Because he's a political prisoner in China. Because he was talking human rights. Because he was working with the human rights, with Amnesty International. That's the reason, that's the case. Why do you believe that... He, I mean, a lot of people wouldn't even know his name, honestly. And I, I, I mean, I, I don't think I'm telling you anything. I don't think I'm breaking any news to you by saying that. There's a lot of people who wouldn't necessarily know his story, but they all knew about the two Michaels. Mm-hmm. Why do you, Why do you think that is? Why do you think he has kind of fallen through the cracks in the narrative in this country? Oh well, maybe they were they were counting him dual citizens, and then they were not giving hard pressure to the Chinese government, you know. And is that's it because why. of the dual citizenship you believe that our country that's has? That's why. Yeah, that's why dual citizenship. And then he was from minority group of in China, in you know the Xinjiang province. He's a Uyghur. That's why, because it's so hard to give give more pressure to China to talk about that case. The Canadian government needs to do a lot of deals with the China. Now they proved they can do it. They can deal with China now. Now. I'm going to push them hardly to to deal to bring him back. Does that give you hope or does that make you think the fact that he didn't get out in this prisoner exchange, boy, it seems like it's even more unlikely. Are you now more optimistic or less optimistic he might get out? I'm being optimistic. It gives me more hope. Now I can see Canada can do deal with China. I don't care what kind of trillions, millions they're going to lose. They're going to lose any kind of 
businesses, I don't care anymore because I have lost 16 years. You know, I grow, I raised four kids myself. No family members, no father. And then they're going to do any kind of deal for my husband to bring him back. Because he's a Canadian citizen. He had enough served more than a decade. Enough is enough. The Gortman, Trudeau's Gortman, hasn't done nothing since he's in the power. Should, Even he cannot, should, he couldn't get, they couldn't get access for him to see him, how he's doing. It's a shame, you know, it's a shame on Canada. He has been served more than a decade. He's a Canadian citizen. He was traveling with Canadian citizens. He never had a dual citizen. They couldn't get access for him to see how he's doing and, you know, his health. He, nobody could check his health since now. Do you, how do you main, maintain hope, though? Because 16 years with no word, no contact, um, you, you know, as you say, the problems you're having with the government, how do you keep any hope that this is going to turn out well? So I have to push the government, and then I want to all the Canadians, you know, to be aware about that case, and then to talk with the member parliament, with the uh, MPs, you know, to bring it up that case, to top the priority. And then push harder to China. Because China is making so many worse things in the world. We can see now. It's, there's so many things is happening in the, for Uyghur minority people there. It's a mass detention. There's a concentration camp, labor camp. So that's the time, I think. This is the time. We lost one time because he didn't bring, he didn't link, he didn't, you know, include saying together with to Michael. I think the next one Hussein needs to be home. He needs to be oh, absolutely. China. Absolutely. Do, do you worry that, um, you know, the two Michaels are, I'm assuming, going to give interviews at some point and they're going to tell their story of what happened over there. Mm-hmm. Do you worry that things that they say may antagonize the Chinese authorities and make things worse for Hussein? Oh, no, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. No. China... No, I don't think so. If you give them more pressure, China's here. You know, if they're going to be like with China, they're going to give you more pressure. That's why the Canada needs to have more and more pressure, because China needs Canada. Are you in contact, uh, Camila, with any... Because as I said, I think there's 115 Canadian citizens that are still in prison there that we that are identified as political prisoners. Do you, are you in contact with any of those other families to, oh, to deal no, with their no. things? No. So you're on your own. Yes. Yes, I do. Yeah, I do myself. And then I, I have a lawyer and then I work with the Amnesty Human Rights Group in Toronto. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I got, we, we only have a minute or so left here, but what? how do you explain all this? How old are your children now? My oldest one, he's 22. Okay. My so he's one, an adult. Yeah. He, my second one, he's 18. And then my third one is uh, 17. My youngest, he's 15. So how do you, for the youngest one, who's probably, has he ever met his father? No, he hasn't seen his father. No. So how do you explain this? What do you talk about? What well, did they was, ask about? Yeah, it was very difficult, you know, when he was young. He missed so many opportunities to spend with the father. You know, even he doesn't know. What does it mean the father? He doesn't know. He doesn't have any idea about the father. I was pregnant, three months pregnant when they arrested him. And then now he's 15 years old man. He's, you know, he's a teenage. He's in high school. Well, how am I going to explain? It's, it's, it's very, 
I raised them myself. It, it was a really, really big challenge. It was really difficult. But I raised very brightful, you know, it's very successful boys. I'm very glad well, I did this part. Good for you. Look, we, we, this story can't get forgotten. I mean, the two Michael story is fantastic, but as I say, there are others like this yes, one just right here yes, in Burlington, yes. and we can't. I'm very, we can't... Yeah, I'm very happy for two Michaels, but on the hand, I'm very deeply disappointed. Whatever they have done through this God man. Camila Telendi Baeva, we very much appreciate you taking some time to talk to us today. Thanks for doing this. Okay, thank you. It is. Um... We have to take a break, but again, like as great as the story is about the Michaels, I mean, that that's in Burlington. That's a Burlington family that is stuck in this limbo. And have you heard anybody from our government talking about this? I mean, have, has, has Hussein Salil been on the tip of the tongue of people? I haven't heard it much. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. So if you listen to Statistics Canada, our food inflation rate right now, the amount that it's going up in price is 2.7%, which is not terrible, really. I mean, that's kind of in line with inflation over the last number of years. Not really all that high. But if you've been going into a grocery store anytime recently to do any shopping, you might be thinking that sounds a little low or a lot low. My next guest does, Sylvain Charlebot, a friend of the show. He's the professor of uh, at the University of Dalhousie, at Dalhousie University, director of the Agri-Foods Lab. We just call him the food professor. That's easier, and I don't have to get all those uh, things all messed up. Uh, Sylvain, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. <laughs> good afternoon, or good evening. You know, uh, yeah, good evening. Uh, when I see 2.7%, I think that's kind of just in line with inflation year after year that I've been seeing, but I go to the grocery store, then it doesn't look at all like that. No, and I think a lot of people would agree with you. Uh, it's just a different experience. And uh, we, we've been wondering for years uh, uh, why uh, we believe the CPI report uh, issued by StatsCan doesn't necessarily reflect uh, what's actually happening at the grocery store. I think that the, the methodology is correct, robust, comprehensive, but... Market conditions have changed significantly in recent years. Uh, uh, some prices are pretty volatile. And uh, as soon as you see uh, prices change so quickly, uh, perhaps the way that Satscan captures the data um, with, uh, with their data collectors may not uh, accurately reflect what's actually going on there. Well, I'll tell you, I was, uh, you and I talked about the price of meat several weeks ago, and I was over at Costco the other day and took a picture because there was a three kilogram beef tenderloin that was on sale for $215. And I was thinking, <laughs> this is, this is not just 2.7% inflation. This is, this is not the old world that we are used to. No, not at all. And of course, uh, the, the meat counter has, has been quite problematic for, for consumers. We have seen uh, prices go up significantly in that section of the grocery store. Uh, other parts of the grocery store have been impacted as well by food inflation. And that's really the reality. I mean, uh, that's, there's, there's no part of the grocery store does, that, that is immune to what's happening right now. Uh, the three factors, obviously, climate change, the weather, uh, labor costs, and transportation, those are the, the key main drivers um, for, for food inflation right now.
But you point out, and and I think with a lot of validity, that you know, StatsCan comes out with numbers and says, for example, bananas, the price of bananas have gone up 0.1%. Yes. And then there's other groups that say, no, no, it's 4.9%. We're not even in the same ballpark. I mean, and and uh, butter, the uh, Statistics Canada <laughs> well, says 2.8%. Yeah. And these other groups are saying, no, it's 36%. That, that, how do they, that's not a close, that, that's not a near miss. No. No, not at all. And again, with butter, if you remember in the spring, we, we spoke about Buttergate, and, uh, and, and Buttergate was really about uh, dairy farmers using uh, palm oil derivatives. Uh, they, were, they were feeding uh, cows with palm oil derivatives to, to, uh, to produce butter fat. But if you don't use that ingredient, you have to increase your cost of production. And that's kind of what's been happening the last few months. And I suspect that it has really pushed prices higher, but it hasn't happened with the CPI, but it has happened for all of us Mm -hmm. (laughs) as we buy more butter. I mean, for people who don't buy butter, they couldn't care less. But a lot of people do buy butter on a regular basis. And here's why this matters, because I I was thinking about this earlier, and I thought, okay, so the numbers are different. Who cares? As long as you you go to the store and you see what the numbers are and you decide if you want to buy it or not. But the cost of living allowance that many people have built into their contracts with their employers is based on the CPI. And so if StatsCan's numbers are way off, this can affect your your wallet down the road because it will lower the increase in the cost of living that we're facing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the one uh, challenge that we're all facing is that wages are necessarily increasing uh, all that quickly, and uh, and often wages are uh, do increase as a result of 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 what's happening with the CPI in Canada. Uh, collective agreements are negotiated based on the CPI uh, report. Uh, wages, rents, everything. So the cost of living is is a big deal, and uh, and the way we're compensated as employees uh, will be impacted by what's being reported by the federal agency, directly or indirectly. So it is a really key indicator um, from a macroeconomic perspective. But does that not mean that somehow something's got to be done to make it closer to the reality? Because again, it, it doesn't sound like it's hitting the mark. No, and we've we've had our share of frustrations with StatsCan over the years. Uh, but I'm happy to report to you, Scott, that uh, today, or actually about two hours ago, uh, I, um, we will be able to meet with some uh, data collectors at StatsCan in, in weeks to come. So finally, uh, they, they, they are willing to meet with us, which is good news. So we'll have a dialogue. It's, it's, really, it's been strange with StatsCan because uh, we do deal with a lot of different federal agencies, uh, or federal departments like Health Canada, CFIA, Ag Canada, and uh, our our interactions with all of these departments have always been pleasant. But with StatScan, there's been some resistance, and I've, I've I've never understood why. We're here to help, and we're not here just to criticize, really. I, I don't want to jump into conspiracy theories. I really don't. But I want to ask. I mean, we we just are have come through an election. And I don't think that any government that's running for re-election wants inflation to be going through the roof. Do you believe there's any political interference in this that would make them keep the the inflation rate down so it wouldn't look bad? No. No, no that's not it. Not at all. No. I, I, this is, I mean, StatsCan has a really uh, great reputation, and it's, 
most of their reporting is science-based. I, I, I don't, don't believe there's any political interfering at all. This is um, this whole thing, though, when we and we've talked again about you know prices going up, but this is this is such a a huge issue for everyone because we can decide not to go to a movie theater and buy a ticket, or not to go to the beer store and buy beer or whatever else. We can't not buy food, and many of the things that you're pointing to is not just prime rib, but the the staples. I mean, macaroni is going through the roof. I mean, many of the things that people, even if you were going to try and live on a very conservative, very modest diet, are going through the roof as far as prices right now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I, we're, we're obviously concerned. Now, uh, when you measure uh, food inflation, it's really a game of averages. So we can get it wrong uh, the CPI report can get it wrong. I mean, it's just an indicator, really, at the end of the day. When you're reporting averages, it may not reflect exactly what people are experiencing, to your point. I mean, Scott, where people will actually buy a certain product, and a 5% being reported by the CPI may actually look more like a 12 or 15%. And that's why a lot of people are, are, are a bit shocked by, by what's going on. But what I do hope at some point... That the reporting will 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 become more accurate, so people can can feel well. Okay, I'm not alone here. Some like other people are feeling the same pinch. I'm not just shopping in the most expensive grocery store in the country. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So this is the thing, and and it's it's very very important that we get it right. And uh, and I mean, when you look at other countries around the world, because we actually look at other countries around the world and compare Canada, we're not doing too badly. But again, if, if our numbers are necessarily right, and food inflation, food in the CPI is about 16 17%. So if, for example, uh, StatsCan is saying that the inflation rate is at 4.1%, uh, it's probably around 4%. Uh, it's so... So the, the index itself should be reliable. But the food part is affecting all of us every single day. Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, the food professor. Always love having you on. Thanks for taking time today. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Blue Jays are about to throw the first pitch against the New York Yankees. And this uh, the season kind of... There, there are still a few games, I think one more series after this one, but the, the season pretty much comes down to this series and this matchup with the Yankees. And honestly, that's that's how it's supposed to be, right? I mean, you don't want to clinch against Baltimore. I mean, that'll end up happening if they do, but you want to at least beat a good team and, and especially beat the, even if the Yankees aren't great, it's the Yankees. Uh, Mark Hebsher, everyone knows Mark Hebsher. Mark Hebsher was for the longest time one of the co-hosts on Sportsline, which everybody watched. And then he was on CHCH for an endless amount of time doing live at 5.30 and square off. And they kept changing the names on me, but it was always a great show. And he joins us now. Mark, how are you? Hey, Scott. Always a pleasure, my friend. So I got to ask you, you have watched Blue Jays baseball since 1977 on the day they first started here. And I'm looking at the lineup that they've got and the stats. Marcus Simeon, 43 home runs, 99 RBI, second baseman home run record. Vlad Guerrero, 46 homers, 105 uh, RBI. T. Oscar Hernandez, 31 homers, 112 RBI. Bo Bichette, 26 homers, 96 RBI. Robbie Ray, probably your Cy Young winner. 
Alec Manoa has been great. How is this team with this roster scratching and clawing and life and death just to get a wild card spot? How is this possible? They happen to be in a division, Scott, that is um, unrelenting. And it's not the Yankees or Red Sox. It's the Tampa Bay Rays. I mean, even Baltimore, who, like, you know, everybody kicks around, can give them problems. Uh, This is a team that, I mean, quite frankly, if you or I were managing this team, I think we could have probably gotten somewhere between two to five more victories just by managing our players better, managing the lineup better. I think Charlie Montoyo is kind of lucky in one way because he's got just such a talented squad. But in the other way, he's obviously um, overmatched in the manager as far as in-game managerial decisions go. He should be getting way more out of this lineup. This should be, you're right, a team that already has a playoff spot. See, that's what I thought. That's what I've thought for a long time now. And I always remember, and you would remember this again better, and people listening will remember this, when Cito Gaston was managing, the the line that always took a little of the praise away from him was anybody could manage a lineup this good. I mean, you have Alomar and Ricky Henderson and Devon White and Molitor and Winfield and, and Carter. I mean, anybody can win with that lineup. Well, isn't that kind of similar to the lineup they have now? And yet all of a sudden we're not saying that anymore. Yeah, no, you're 100% right. 100%. This lineup, you know, I think this line, I think at first when the year began, it was like, you know, this is the year, but if not this year, for sure, 2022. I don't think they believed in a million years that Marcus Simeon would have the year he's having. No, nope. I don't think in a million years they thought Robbie Ray would go from being a guy who couldn't find the strike zone with any regularity to, you know, the Cy Young co-favorite. I don't think nope. anyone could have predicted what happened. So, so what happened was once they realized the talent that they had, and they said, oh my goodness, let's Let's go and get some pieces. Let's go get another great starting pitcher. Let's go get Berrios, which they did. Let's go, you know, let's open up the vault, as it were. So this team is now built for this year only. Because if they can't re-sign Marcus Simeon, I don't think they will. They can't re-sign Robbie Ray, and I don't think they will. You know, there's two big, huge holes to fill. So if you've got the guys and the and the numbers, and again, it's it's not like there's just one or two guys. It's up and down the roster, and I didn't even mention, I mean, Springer's been pretty good when he's been healthy, and Bichette has been, I said Bichette already, um, uh, Biggio has been pretty good when he's been healthy, and if you don't get in the playoffs this year, where does the blame fall? Does it automatically fall on Montoyo because he's the manager and that's the first place everyone looks? Or do you look higher and do you say, you know what, the general manager handcuffed him by not giving him a bullpen for the first half of the year. And the blame's got to fall on Ross Atkins or Mark Shapiro. Who gets the slings and arrows after this if they don't make it? Well, who's to say that everybody, you know, a combination of things. Uh, Number one, you have to look at your, the players that you expected the most out of, which would be your two recent free agent signings, Ryu and Springer this year. And the answer in both cases this year would be disappointing. Springer, like you say, when he's healthy, but he's not healthy. Right. And even when he was sort of healthy, Montoyo continued to put him in at the leadoff spot, and he went through a terrible slump until he broke out of it uh, a couple of nights ago. And I mean, broke out of it. Well, what does that mean? That means, you know, he got he had a couple of home runs. 
So Springer still has to con- prove, especially now in these all-important games, that he's he's worth the money, that he's worth the $150 million you paid for him because you got him for four more years after this. So his play this past, this week coming up is huge. Ryu, who's pitching tonight and will likely not, well, likely, hopefully, also be pitching if they get to the playoffs. Um, you know, this is big for him. He's not had a good year. So this is where the guys, you know, not Vladdy. Hey, listen, he's still a young player. Bo, young player. Semyon, he's on a one-year contract. But, you know, you're big money guys. You're big free agent signings. Those are the guys that have to, they have to lead the way. And those two guys are not. But they can redeem themselves if the Jays can pull it off here in the final week of the season. What do you, let's go back to Car, uh, to Montoyo for just a minute here, because this is, uh, there are so many people that have so many different opinions on what role a manager really plays in a, on a baseball team. You said two to three more wins. If it was someone different, is that the, is that the amount the manager is worth right now? Two to three wins, or could a great manager have given them 10 more wins by just managing the heck out of this team? Well, I mean, you'll never know that. Of course you never will. And, and you know, a lot of Montoyo's, moves turn out well i mean you know when he started pinch running danny jansen for alejandro kirk in the sixth or seventh innings people were like well why would you use him to pinch run i mean you know what would you do that for uh and in fact i you know i thought it was a very um, smart move by montoyo because jansen does run pretty well he's pretty athletic but why would you burn a pinch runner like dyson who you could might be able to use in the ninth inning if he made the stolen base but even the way the announcers, you know, um, Buck Martinez or Dan Schulman um, and Pat Tabler sort of go, oh, and Montoyo's not going to the bullpen or, oh, he's bringing in so-and-so to pinch run. There's that questioning in their voices, which I guess we all do. What's he doing that for? That doesn't seem like the right move. That wouldn't be the, room, the move I would make. Well, you know, that's sort of the, the life of a manager. It's kind of like a weather forecaster. <laughs> there's a 40% chance of this happening. You know what I mean? Yeah, and so there's a, what are the chances? I mean, is he going strictly by analytics? Does he go with his gut? Does he say, I think Corey Dickerson can hit this left-handed uh, pitcher and he's pitching him away. I think Corey can go the other way on him. So there's just so much. There's so much, but obviously the manager never gets enough credit when the team wins and pretty much always gets blamed if they lose, especially close games. And the Blue Jays have lost a lot of one run games. Yeah, and, and I, I especially agree with your first part. They never get the credit. I mean, I still look at Cito Gaston and say there's a manager who you you compare him to other guys of his era, even still today, but a guy like Tony La Russa. And I think they not have the same number of championships, and Tony La Russa is cited by everybody as this managerial genius, and Cito Gaston was just the guy who was riding along on everyone's coattails and just sitting there. Yeah, really hard. really hard to compare that. Really difficult. I mean, Cito did what he thought was best to win games. He did what he had to do to win games. Uh, And he might have bristled with certain players or whatever, but hey, that's part of it. Um, You know, Earl Weaver was more confrontational. You think? Um, A lot of these guys were very theatrical on the field, right? But behind closed doors, the way I understood it with a lot of these guys, behind closed doors was a totally different atmosphere. I mean, you've got to manage 25 different personalities. You know, some of them hate you. Some of them love you. And I think one manager or someone along the line says the secret was to keep the guys who hated you away from the guys that were indifferent about you. 
Let me switch uh, tack here a little bit because I, I, I mentioned at the very top of the show today that uh, today is a today's a significant anniversary in Canada, and it's kind of, you know, I, I don't know if anyone sort of really celebrates it now, but I mean, it was uh, 1972, this day that Paul Henderson scored. Are we at the point now, Mark, when you think it's getting to be, it's starting to matter less and less because we have fewer and fewer people who were alive at that time and... You know, it's just it's just not as relevant a, a a thing anymore to a huge chunk of the population. Well, I'll let you in on a little secret, Scott. The late Pat Stapleton and I had um, uh, put together a um, um, proposal, more than a proposal. It was further down the road than that, where all the living members of the '72 Canada uh, team from that series and their relatives, I guess, or their spouses or significant others, uh, of which, you know, many of them are still alive, you know, they are, they're all part of a group. um, And they had all sort of signed off on let's, let's do this together. Let's celebrate it together. And as you know, next year is the 50th anniversary. And so for the last few years, um, Pat and I had been working on with others, trying to get, how would we get every, how can we get everyone together? in the same room for one or two or a series of celebrations and maybe go across the country and, and at the same time incorporate today's digital world, uh, social media world, um, use prominent celebrities uh, that younger people could identify with, right? For example, maybe Justin Bieber's father or grandfather, for all I know, told him a story about how the world stopped that day, and he was enamored by it, and he had seen the tapes of it. And, and, and to be able to be a part of that celebration, that even though you weren't there when it happened, you had heard stories, and now is a great time, and maybe the last great time to celebrate an anniversary of something, where, like you say, there are still many of them alive, and this may be the last chance. They tried something on the 45th. There was a 40th thing. They had gone to... Uh, Moscow and, and actually went pretty well. They they they, they met uh, Putin and uh, not, you know, and uh, they played a little hockey. And, uh, but the fiftieth is a big deal, fiftieth anniversary. So I'm pretty sure there is somebody that's doing something. Um, what we wanted to do because we had we had all the members of the '72 team sort of on board with uh, this idea of let's be, do a big countrywide celebration. But unfortunately, um, Pat mm. passed away. Yeah, he he was the linchpin. He he also was the guy who everyone knows, even though he denied it for a while, had the puck. Did you ever get to hold the puck? No. Here's what happened with the puck. Okay, his son Mike Stapleton, also an NHLer, nicknamed Whitey, uh, currently a scout with the um, Anaheim Ducks, I believe. Uh, Whitey told me the story that when Pat came back from um, um, from Europe uh, from the tournament. He immediately had to go to training camp with, I think, either the Blackhawks or the Chicago Cougars. But whatever it was, they had a sort of a shed behind the house. And he just threw all of his equipment and everything like into the shed. Uh, And what happened was the boys, you know, there there was a big white five gallon bucket that was filled with pucks that the boys just, you know, they had tons of them. They had a backyard rink. And and what Pat had done was he had sort of absentmindedly just taken all the pucks and and just tossed them into this big white barrel. And since there were no markings, no significant markings on the puck, 
where you could have um, differentiated from one puck to another. It didn't have a Canadian Tire logo on it. It didn't have a, a crest of the 72 Summit Series. It was just a, a black puck from Moscow. Um, they never knew which puck it really, really was. And so he just sort of plucked one out and said, yeah, this is the one. Because it was just in, <laughs> in a month of like 50 pucks. Hence, hence the reason that it's never gone on auction for two million bucks, and somebody hasn't spent all the money on it, right? Uh, right. Because that would have, that would have. I mean, what was what did Henderson's sweater go for? A million and a bit. I mean, the, yeah. the puck would have been right up there. Uh, That's Mark, pretty the funny, very though, talk, eh? It's pretty funny when you think. Well, about it. it's 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 kind of sad, really. I mean, when you think about it, because I know that you know you've got that puck that's missing. I wrote a few years ago, um, back I guess in four, five, four years ago now, five years ago the puck that Gretzky passed to Lemieux in the Canada Cup in, in Hamilton. That yeah. puck went missing. And in fact, if you follow the story, and I don't want to give away the ending, but I already wrote it and it was already published, that mm-hmm. puck almost certainly is in a coffin in a cemetery in Brantford, which right. is just bonkers. Um, but all these these key things, these huge moments are um, are gone. Uh, listen, we got a couple of minutes, and I said at the top of the show, and I want to ask you this, back in 72... Uh, when the Canadians went over to Russia, my parents went over there. They were they went with a I think there were like three thousand Canadians there, and yeah. my parents were among them. My parents were in the Lishniki Sports Palace, and so years later, among a few other things, my mom calls me and says we've got some stuff like some programs and unused game tickets because one of the games they didn't go to and a bunch of other wow. things. And so anyway, I have in front of me right now, Mark, the Hockey Canada Tour, September nineteen seventy two. This was the the tour that was put together over here for people to go there. It includes your this transatlantic the flights. Sorry, this the one with the Bolshoi Ballet. They all went yep. to the Bolshoi yep. Ballet. Yep. Wow. Yep. So, so here's the, here's what's listed in the program. And I want to get your guess on this. So it includes your transatlantic flights on air Canada transfers between the airport and hotel and flights accommodations for 10 day, 10 nights, three meals a day, Bolshoi Ballet, Kremlin, going to the Kremlin, um, the Moscow circus, of on and on and on and four hockey tickets for all four games, your tickets for all four games. What do you think? What would you guess now? Yes. 1972, but what would you guess that the whole package, it was all in one price. What would you guess that would have cost? In 1972, in 1972. So it was in 1972 it was $99 to fly return from Toronto to Montreal. So I'm going to say, um, I'm going to say $999 with airfare and tickets and all that stuff. You are as close as anyone today has been who's guessed at this one. You are, you are, you are the least off $649 for the entire thing, the entire thing, including the hockey tickets. You can't buy a good platinum maple leaf ticket for one regular season game for the price you could have gone to Moscow for all four games. That's crazy. Is that not unbelievable? But but were people flying to Russia from North America back in those days? No. And Did they don't know forget. anything about Russia? Did they know anything about what the accommodations or the food was like or the arena? No. And my parents, um, I think if I was to, I know that my dad told me once upon a time, I mean, they... They didn't going there was for them was not really for the hockey. It was because what you just said, you couldn't go to Moscow then. It was sort of off limits. Right. right and this right. was your if you wanted to see it, this was your chance. And so that's why one of the one of, I have these two unused game tickets because my parents met some Russian family who invited them to their house for dinner, apparently. And that was 
stunning. And so they went and they missed the, the very first game over in Russia. And I've got these tickets now. But keep in mind one other thing about that, the $649 before when they would have booked this, and anyone anyone who's old enough to remember this series and the lead up to it will recall this, when they would have had to book this months in advance, nobody thought that those games would mean anything because Canada would have won the first four by 10 nothing every time. And it was just, you know, an exhibition over there. You would have right. never guessed this would have been as meaningful as it was. Right, right. Fabulous. Great story. Still, $650 for the whole shooting match. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I would, uh, if if that happened again and they posted that, I might go. (laughs) (laughs) Might even take you, Mark. I would take you along. 650 bucks? Sure, we'll go together. Yeah, yeah. That is uh, that is Mark Hebsher, great sportscaster, always has been. Mark, you know what? I got to tell you, every time, and I, I'm not just going to suck up to you, but you know, I I was talking to someone the other day, and I will suck up to you. I was talking to someone the other day, and we were talking about you, and they said, you know, I, when I was younger, I watched Sportsline every single night, and I said, yeah, you know what? So did I. Everybody did. Glad to be able to still talk to you about this stuff. Anytime, my friend. I hope things are going well with you and the family. Big Caleb going to be a major league baseball player, or what's he going to do? Become an academic. I think he's uh, he's moving more into the business world, but you know what? They uh, they all had their moments, and that was uh, just like your guys. And uh, yeah, that's uh, those are good days. Those are good memories. Uh, Mark, Hebsch, always always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. All right, Scott. That is uh, Mark Hebsher again. You know what? Uh, it, as a kid in university, especially every night, eleven thirty, watched Sports Line. And so did everybody else. That was the show because we didn't have all the all sports networks and all those highlight shows and everything sports line him and jim taddy were the two to watch and uh it's kind of fun still to be able to talk to him not that he's old or going anywhere it's just you know nice to be able to chat with him the scott radley show weekday evenings from six to eight on 900 chml the scott radley show podcast is available on apple podcast google podcast and wherever you get your podcasts i'm scott radley thanks again for listening and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast it is free you will never miss an episode and also be sure you rate us and review us whatever you think of us we'll take it thanks for listening for most of us crime is something we see on the news we never think it could happen to us until it does Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.